You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You've heard that. Lots of you have heard that. That's, a, that's one of the, probably one of the best known exhortations of Paul the Apostle. It's, it's in the book of Philippians. And to my knowledge, it's the only one that he repeats like that, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. That wasn't just Paul that, uh, that called believers to rejoice. We see it in James. We see it in 1 Peter. We see Jesus calls us to rejoice. And in fact, it's not just contained in the New Testament. If you go through the pages of the Old Testament, you will find again and again in the Old Testament that God's people are called to be joyful. We're called to rejoice. Now, most of us, most believers would would agree, I think readily, that being joyful is good. We would acknowledge that we should be joyful. Our problem, though, is that often we aren't. We aren't joyful. In fact, sometimes we feel like the best we can do is just act like we're happy, but not really be joyful. You know, like, have you ever been had that experience where uh, there's pictures are being taken, and it's taking a long time, and somebody's like, okay, one more picture, one more picture, and you're like, oh. and you give the big smile, the big pasted smile. Sometimes we sort of feel like that when we hear that call, rejoice in the Lord always. Everybody look happy. Well, of course, that's not exactly what Paul means, but sometimes he's not, it's not what he's calling for, but sometimes we feel like that's the best we can do. And I think the, the big reason for that is, is just the, the pressures and the problems and the pain that we go through in life drains our joy and, and makes it hard for us to do what we're called to do, to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. Well, you know, Paul the Apostle, I mean, he knew all about problems and pressures and pain in his life, didn't he? In fact, when he wrote the book of Philippians, his circumstances were terrible. They were terrible. He was, he was in prison, awaiting trial with an unknown outcome. Plus, there were professing Christians who were openly opposed to him. He was going through a terrible trial. He was attacked, opposed, imprisoned. He was in danger. And in the context of Philippians is in that context in, that he wrote Philippians and called on the believers to rejoice. And not only did he tell them to rejoice, but we'll see in our text today that he himself rejoiced. Right? It wasn't just a call, you people, be happy, be happy for me, right? He, no, he, he himself was rejoicing. In fact, we'll see in our text today, he says, I rejoice. And then he doubles down and he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Well, how can someone with every reason to be miserable, be so joyful. Under unimaginable pressure, facing in real uncertainty, in an experience that Paul would himself in Philippians call sorrowful, Paul could say that he was also joyful. How? How could he be so joyful? Right there in the jailhouse. He was in the jailhouse. He had jailhouse joy. How do you get that? Where where does it come from? Right there in the jailhouse, Paul had joy. And it wasn't a pasted smile 
kind of joy, like everybody look happy, but real and genuine and sustaining. Well, our passage today, I think, is going to show us how we can get some of that joy for ourselves as believers. It shows us that not only is joy possible, but how we can have it ourselves. And, and you, you may not be in the, well, you're not in the jailhouse. I mean, you're here. So maybe if you're watching online, I'm not sure your circumstances out there. But, but um, I mean, you're, you may not be in the jailhouse per se, but many of you, if not most of you, if not all of you, are facing trial and trouble in your life. You know what it is to be under pressure, to be encountering problems. Trials and troubles are never far from us. My aim is to help you, to equip you with joy in the Lord in the face of that, tri- that trial and trouble. And I'm going to do that today in Philippians chapter 1. So I'd love for you, please, to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 18 through 21. Philippians 1, verses 18 to 21. We're in our teaching series through the book of Philippians, To Live is Christ. So grateful for Pastor Brett and his ministry last weekend. What a great message he, he delivered to us on Reformation Sunday. I'm so grateful for that. Still being blessed by it. Um, so we had, but we had a week off from the book of Philippians. Now we're back into uh, our series, To Live is Christ, just a verse by verse through Philippians. And uh, when we come to uh, our text here, we're in a, a portion of Philippians 1 where Paul has been talking to the Philippians about the fact that the difficulty he'd been going through, the troubles that he'd been experiencing, while they may have thought would have been frustrating his ministry, these troubles, Paul said, were actually advancing his ministry. In fact, in the, the context here, in verse 12, he told them that what has happened to me, I just read it, just look at verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So while you might think that me being in jail here would be a, a real showstopper for the gospel going forward, it's actually turned out the opposite way. The gospel is going forward. He, he went on to tell them how the, the Christ had been become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And not only that, Christians, seeing what the Lord was doing and seeing Paul's experience, were themselves emboldened for ministry and were more bold themselves to share the gospel. And so he's like, actually, the gospel is going forward because of my circumstances. God is at work here. And, uh, and even the people who were out to get Paul, even the content of what they were preaching was true. So he's like, what do I say to all this? All these troubles, what's my conclusion? Verse 18, what then? Only... In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and here it is, and in that I rejoice. Now, verse 18, part B, the second half, it's another paragraph of my Bible. Yes, and I will rejoice. So I, I do rejoice, and I'm going to rejoice going forward. Why, Paul? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's the Holy Spirit, this, in other words, this, this situation I'm in, these trials, these troubles, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. There's three things that I want to tell you today about how we can experience joy in the midst of trial and trouble. 
how do we get this jailhouse joy? First, we experience jailhouse joy when our hope is in God. When our hope is in God. That's when we experience jailhouse joy. I mean, Paul was in, uh, he was in dire circumstances here, and yet, you can just reading it, you can see he's really hopeful. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. And then he talks about a level of confidence he has that he will be delivered. He says, for I know that through your prayers, verse 19, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Or some of your Bibles might say salvation. It's a word that's often rendered salvation in the New Testament. Well, whatever this deliverance is, who do we suppose that Paul envisioned was going to supply that deliverance? It's going to be God, right? He, he, there's an implicit acknowledgement here that God is going to do something, that God is going to deliver. Paul's hope was squarely on God, not on himself, not on his own, his own strategies, his own solutions, not on him gaining control. Like lots of us feel that way, that sometimes life will be better when I get more control of my circumstances. <laughs> Just say, how's that working? It's tough to get control of your circumstances, isn't it? It's not going to get better that way. It's, in fact, it often gets worse sometimes, it seems, in troubles and trials. Paul's hope was not in himself and figuring things out and getting himself freed from his troubles. His hope was in, in God, in God that he's the deliverer. Now, it's, another, it's also a fair question to ask, what kind of deliverance did Paul envision? There's some commentators, some Bible commentators that would say that, that they believe that the kind of deliverance Paul had in mind was deliverance from jail. After all, he was in jail and it seems he was facing trial. And so there's some Bible commentators that would argue, understandably, that, that uh, the deliverance that Paul has in mind is released from prison, like delivered from jail, delivered from this trial, from this circumstance. And that's plausible. However, I'd suggest to you that it's more likely that the kind of deliverance, the kind of salvation that Paul has in mind, isn't immediate deliverance from his trouble, but ultimate deliverance from sin in heaven forever. And I say that because when you read verse 20, you get the sense that Paul's not sure how his immediate circumstances will turn out. Look at verse 20 when he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, so he's, he's like, this, I could go either way. I don't know. But I do know, I do know that there's a deliverance for me. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. I think the kind of deliverance that Paul has in mind is ultimate deliverance, ultimate salvation. You can see that in the context, it's likely that's what he means. But also, too, when you recognize that this line here that he uses, this will turn out for my deliverance, is almost verbatim. It's almost a verbatim quote from the book of Job. And something Job said in Job 13. In Job chapter 13, of course, if you know the story of Job, he was a man who was a godly man. He was a holy man. And he suffered multiple calamities all close together, all in a short period of time. And he had some quote-unquote friends who came along to comfort him, and their way of comforting him was by telling him, Job, this is all your fault. Don't you, you, ever, you ever have a friend like that that comes along in your worst day and say, you know, you just got yourself to blame? Just like, thank you for that. Now, sometimes your friend is right, but in Job's case, they were dead wrong. This wasn't Job's fault. What they didn't know was what we know in reading Job is that it was actually a satanic attack. 
It was a work of Satan, a work of the devil. There was spiritual warfare going on, and that's why there had been so much calamity. But these so-called friends were like, you know, it's, it, it, Job, it's all your fault. It's because you've, you must have sinned, and you've got some hidden sin in there, and our ministry will be to just, just to browbeat you, brow you into confessing it, and then, and then it'll be out on the table, and your life will get better. Well, the friends, of course, were dead wrong, and Job knew in his heart they were dead wrong. Not that he thought of himself to be totally sinless, like he'd never sinned, but he, he knew that he loved God. He knew that he lived for God. He knew that he trusted God. And in the face of this calamity, Job really cried out to God and made his case before God. And in the midst of all this, in Job 13, he gave this statement. He said, though he, though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. A hope in him. Even if God would allow calamity upon calamity upon calamity, I will still hope in him. Because that's where my hope is. And loved ones, you and I experience jailhouse joy when our hope is not in ourselves, not in things getting better, but in God. That's what Job could do. And then Job 13, verse 16, he said this, and this is the line that Paul uses. Yes, this will result in my deliverance. For no godless person can appear before him. In other words, Job is saying in his context, I will be vindicated. In the end, I, I will be vindicated. Even if nothing good happens to me from now to the day I die, I know I'll be vindicated because I believe in God and I'm counted righteous in him. Now here, Paul borrows from Job, facing real adversity himself because of his commitment to Christ, but he hopes in God for a full, final, forever salvation in which he will be vindicated. In the end, he will be shown to have been right to live for Christ, to preach Christ, even to die for Christ. That's why he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed being ashamed in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is often associated with being condemned, being condemned and judged by God for sin. But Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. Again, I think looking forward to future, the future salvation, full and forever salvation. In fact, there's other places where we see Paul use this kind of language. Romans 9 and 33 says this, Whoever believes in him, Jesus, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, we know sometimes in our Christian lives we face shaming, don't we? But ultimately, if you put your hope in Jesus, you will never be disappointed. You will not be disappointed in the end. You won't be put to shame. That's what he means. Romans 10 verse 11 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He'll be delivered. This is what Paul's talking about. So verse 20, when he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be put to shame. He's with, with an eager longing, looking forward to the sure and certain salvation that's coming his way. It may be soon, it may be later, but it's coming. And it's his expectation and hope as he hopes not in himself, but in God, that he'll be saved, that he'll be vindicated someday soon. He knew it. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate this for you in a way that's a bit risky because it's very possible this may just confuse you more than anything, but it works for me. So let me try this on you, okay? 
Um, something about me that you may not know is that I hate parades. I do not like parades. I do not like them, Sam. I am. Parades, my, my main problem with parades is that they're so boring. I don't, maybe you like marching bands and floats, but I, I don't. And what's worse is usually if it's a parade that I'm at, it's the Santa Claus parade. And the Santa Claus parade is always this time of year. And not only is it boring, it's cold. And to stand out there and have to endure this, 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 this. And the other thing too is you never know how long it's going to be, right? Is this a half hour parade? The best Santa Claus parade I ever went to was in Maynooth, Ontario. It was 10 minutes. Best parade I ever went to. But they so, they're so long. Now, the only thing that gets me through that parade, there's one thing, and it's I know it's not going to last forever. In fact, as soon as I see Santa Claus, I know it's over. And so my kids will tell you that every, every parade we go to, they're kind of amused at me grumbling and complaining out there. Not that my grumbler complaining, but I hate parades. And stand out there, and when I see Santa, I almost invariably say, I've never been so happy to see Santa in my life. Now we can go home. So I endure Santa Claus parades because I have an eager expectation and hope that Santa's coming. And when he comes, I can go home and thaw. Now, I said this may not work for you, but it works for me. I know he's coming because it's a Santa Claus parade. If there ain't no Santa, it ain't a Santa Claus parade. I know he's coming, and it's my eager expectation and hope. I want him to come. I know he's coming, and when he comes, I will be saved. Okay? Are you with me? What Paul is saying here is it's that kind of eager expectation, but not in the miserable bearing through it like I do at the parade. That's where the, that's where the illustration doesn't work. But rather, a real anticipation, a certain knowledge. I know that there's coming salvation. I won't be in this position forever. In fact, it's only a short time. In fact, really, when you, when you hope in God, you know that salvation is sure. When you hope in God you know that your trials are temporary. Joy cometh in the morning. When you hope in God, we know that our trials give way to triumph. When you hope in God, you know God and his character and his word and his promises and his works. And you have faith in him through Christ. That salvation is coming. It's an eager expectation and hope. And loved ones, when you're in the jailhouse, that's where the joy's at. Hoping in him. Hoping in him. Loved one, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your sorrow, plead with God for faith to look to him, to hope in him. We can't hope in things being better tomorrow because it may be worse tomorrow. This is not heaven. This is earth. And it is broken. So loved ones, hope in God, that's where the joy is at. That's how Paul could say, and I will rejoice. Not because I think that the sun will come up tomorrow, but because I've got a deliverance that's coming. One way or another, God's going to do it. We experience jailhouse joy when 
Our hope is in God. That's the first thing. Second thing I want you to hear is this. We experience jailhouse joy when our help is the Spirit. When our hope is in God and when our help is the Spirit. Paul knew in the midst of his troubles that he was not sufficient for himself. And he says that really remarkably in verse 19 about the, the, the means by which God is going to carry him through. Did you notice the means that Paul identifies? Two things. Verse 19, I know, he says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, God has means of carrying me through, and his means are your prayers and the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, many Bible commentators, and I would concur with them, would argue that the way the language is, is rendered here in the Greek, it gives you the sense that the prayers in verse 19, see, through your prayers, that the prayers, what they're praying for is for the help of the Holy Spirit. You see that you can sort of you can sort of get that even in the English says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, like these go together. What are they praying for? They're praying for the Holy Spirit to strengthen Paul. They're praying for the Holy Spirit to encourage Paul. They're praying for the Holy Spirit to keep doing what he's doing through Paul and to and to embolden him and to help him to be faithful because that's actually what the Spirit does. The Spirit's ministry is, is many and varied in our lives, but He does, the, He sanctifies us, He empowers us, He convicts us of sin, and He encourages us. He, he, he enables us to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, how do you know tomorrow, how do you know that you'll wake up still following Jesus tomorrow? Like, how do you know that tomorrow you won't just turn away? Because of the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in you to, to keep you faithful to Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about. You're, you're going to be praying for me and the Spirit's going to be working. And that's the means by which God's going to keep me going and see me through to the end. And the, the glorious reality here as I read this is it, it reminds me, hey, you know what? You know what? In the midst of my trial, in the midst of my trouble, and they are many, I'm not alone. I, I'm not alone. Because you've got the people of God praying around you, and you've got the Spirit of God working in you. In fact, one of the smartest things you could do today is before you leave here to get someone to pray for you. Pray for the Spirit to work in me to what? Help me to love my spouse. Help me to stay faithful to Jesus to help me in this situation at work, to help me, help me to love my neighbor, to help me to keep on trusting. What, what, what is it you need? Paul says, Paul shows us here, reminds us that God has means, and that means is ultimately the work of the Spirit. Paul talks about being courageous. You notice that in verse 20? It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. We talked about that a moment ago. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Notice what he needs? Courage. Boldness. Courage. Where would that courage come from? It come from the Spirit. It come from answered prayers. 
The Spirit would enable Paul to be courageous, to be a bold evangelist, to be an obedient disciple, to be a faithful follower of Christ. The, the Spirit would encourage him, would encourage him in knowing the Lord, in keeping on going. So he's like, as you pray for me, the Spirit will be sanctifying me, empowering me, and enabling me to be faithful, to honor Christ in my body. I'll honor Christ in my body because of your prayers and the work of the Spirit. You see, what's happening here is Paul is showing us something of the power for Christian living. And that is the work of the Spirit and answered prayers. When I think about this, this idea of the, the power and the strength of the Spirit in our lives, it, uh, I just think of, I think of those of you who, are on a, who work or own a farm and the PTO, you know the power takeoff on the back of, your, on the, back of the tractor? That's an awesome thing. Like when I was a kid, uh, I did not grow up on a farm. I grew up in the city, but, but um, my dad's cousin owned and operated a farm, and one of my favorite things was to go and visit there. We, we spent lots of time there. We'd go there for full days, weekends. We'd, we'd spend lots of time there, and I loved being around the, the animals, and I especially loved being around the equipment, the machinery. And I still remember clear as day uh, during hay season, you know, trying to get the, the hay up into the loft in, in the, the top of the barn, and, uh, you know, those bales, you know, I'm there sort of helping as a kid, and uh, you know, how are we going to get this hay up the way up in the in the barn? Well, there's an elevator there, and there's just elevators just sitting there. And of course, I'm a city kid, right? Where do you pl- where do you plug this thing? How does this thing work, right? And my uncle would take it and he'd hook it into the the the, uh, the PTO, the power takeoff, and all of a sudden this thing starts going. And you just put the hay bales on there, and it just chugs them right up on there, up in, in the barn. Remember, it's a powerful thing. I remember my uncle saying to me, he's always he, he was pretty easy going with me, but except for around that PTO, okay, you stay back from that. You stay back for that. Why? Because it's a powerful thing. You get your sleeve caught in that thing, ain't good. Ain't good because it's power. You can't stop. That's like the Holy Spirit. There's there's power in our lives. And and what Paul is saying here, what he's talking about here is the work of the Spirit in answer to prayer that keeps him, that will embolden him, that will strengthen him, that will encourage him. Loved ones, we cannot do this life on our own. And we don't have to. We need the prayers of the people. We need the work of the Spirit. How do I know that I won't buckle under this trial or give up or deny the Lord? Because I'm not on my own. I have the Holy Spirit at work in me. And God's means of working is an answer to, his, to our prayers and the work of the Spirit. There's two common reasons that our lives are often limp and our ministries often weak prayerlessness, and because we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. Prayerlessness, we don't pray. (laughs) We don't pray. God answers prayer. We need to pray. Paul said that's it's crucial. It's crucial. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. We need prayers. We need the work of the Spirit. But too often we grieve and quench the Spirit. What does that mean? It means we sin. We've got sin in our lives. That we don't confess and we, we stay in our sin sometimes. We dabble in it and, and it quenches the Spirit. The Spirit wants to do things in our lives. Wants to use us. Wants to encourage us. Wants to embolden us. To make us more like Christ. Not only in our character but also in our conduct. But when we dabble with sin and we get at home with sin, that quenches the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit. Cause him to sorrow. And that's why sometimes our lives look so empty and weak. 
It's because of sin, bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, a critical spirit. These things are so common, so prevalent today in our churches. It grieves the spirit. And the result, result is limp living and joylessness. But when we're filled with the Spirit, we know and experience the power of the Lord. And that is for us a source of joy. Knowing that God is with us and he's working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's the ministry of the Spirit. We, we experience jailhouse joy with the help of the Spirit. When our help is the Holy Spirit in answer to prayer. I just want to get someone to pray for you. Pray, pray for work of the Holy Spirit in your life because we need that joy. We experience jailhouse joy when our hope is in God, when our help is the Spirit. That's two things. The third thing is this. We experience jailhouse joy when our happiness is in Jesus. When our happiness is in Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 20. Again, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, verse 21, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, Lord willing, we'll meditate more on that next week. But, but notice Paul's ambition. The, the one thing that Paul wanted in life, the one passion he had, was for Christ to be honored. Because he loved Jesus. His joy was in Jesus. And that's why he was fired up. Sometimes you got to get a sense of the tone of the text. You should hear Paul's passion in this text as, he, as, you, as you read it. That Christ would be honored in my body. That's his, that's his zealous purpose in living. Paul's aim, his desire, his goal is that Jesus would be loved. That Jesus would be believed. That Jesus would be worshipped. That Christ would be proclaimed. And he wanted his body to be a, a means by which that happened. He wanted to be a tool used by Jesus. That, that every part of his body, from the top of his head to the, the bottom of his feet, that he would be used to, to bring honor to Jesus. That Jesus would be honored with his mouth, with his hands, with his feet, with his mind. That's my passion in life. That's what I want from my life. From the top of my balding head to down to my calloused big toes. On every part of my body, I want my body to be used to honor Jesus. My mouth and what I say, my, my mind and how I exercise it, my hands and what I do, my feet and where I go. I want this body, as long as I'm on the top side of the earth, I want it to honor Jesus. And many of you want that too. You, you, you want it. And the reason is because your joy is in him. Your joy is not in how today is going or how tomorrow might go, but it's in Jesus. And that's where you find, that's how you find jailhouse joy, is when your happiness, your joy, your pleasure, your delight is in Jesus. Paul derived joy from Jesus being honored. Do you? Do you derive joy from Jesus being honored? The only way that you'll ever do that, the only way that you will derive joy from Jesus being honored is if you perceive in your heart that compared to anyone or anything else, Jesus is better. You will derive joy from Jesus being honored if you perceive in your heart that compared to anyone and anything else, Jesus is better. And the only way you'll do that if God, is if God gives you the grace to see with the eyes of your heart that Jesus is worthy. And that he's precious. When I was a kid, 
we used to, around church, we used to always sing this chorus. It goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. It goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Somebody sing that with me. Let's just sing that. Sing that together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When Paul turned his eyes upon Jesus, what did he see? He saw the love of Jesus, who loved us, Paul says, Ephesians 5, 2, who loved us and gave himself up for us. When Paul turned his eyes upon Jesus, what did he see? He saw the saving power of Jesus, who he says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, 1 Timothy 1. When Paul turned his eyes upon Jesus, he saw an awesome Jesus. One could never forget Acts chapter 9, when we read about Paul first encountering Jesus, the risen Jesus. And he was converted in an astonishing way. In Philippians, when Paul turned his eyes upon Jesus, what did he see? He saw the exalted Jesus. In Philippians 2, just turn there for a moment to chapter 2, verse 9. Paul describes the exalted Jesus that he sees with the eyes of his heart. He perceives this. This is what Jesus is like. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So talk about Christ's sufferings. And then on the other side of his sufferings, there's exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that, the name of, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Paul turned his eyes upon Jesus, that's by faith and by God's grace, that's what he saw. He saw an awesome Jesus, an exalted Jesus, before whom everyone will bow and everyone will acknowledge as Lord. All the attention and accolades and adoration the world gives to movie stars and athletes and actors and artists and academics ought really to be directed at one, the one who reigns and rules over all. If we will stand and cheer for a man with a hockey stick who shoots a puck into a net, then what will we do with the one who raises the dead? If we will go on and on and on and on and on, talking of people who hold political office, lamenting their decisions, fawning over their achievements, then what words will we spare for the king who reigns and rules over all, before whom all those knees will bow? If we spend time and money and energy and think time and passion time on people who are promoted by publishers and record companies or pumped on social media... Then what kind of investment will we make in the one whom God has highly exalted and given the name Lord? I'm not down on sports or politics or the arts. Well, I'm at least not down on sports and the arts. But I am calling our attention to the fact that this world is bustling with activity that distracts from the one deserving all honor and glory, and praise, and in whom we find our deepest and abiding joy. 
See, that's where jailhouse joy comes from. It's when our happiness is in Jesus. So to close the service today, we're going to turn our eyes on him in a way that he has appointed through communion. See, when we partake of communion, the Bible tells us many things about the significance of this. For sure, one thing we do is we remember. We remember what it is that Jesus did for us, that he died on the cross for our sins. That's the gospel message. Christ died for our sins, Paul says. We remember, we recall the fact that Jesus paid it all, as we sometimes sing. And what we mean by that is he, he paid for my sin, that I can be forgiven and find favor and a home with God. We remember when we partake of communion. But Paul says, he told the Corinthian church that also when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we also proclaim. We proclaim his death. See, as we partake of these emblems in a moment, the bread and the, the cup reminds us of the death of Jesus. And in partaking it, even though we don't use words per se, we are saying something in what we're doing, that Jesus died for us. And more than that, that Jesus is our life. And we worship him. He's our treasure. See, when I read what Paul says here, there's an implicit challenge for us to look to Jesus. Because that's where we find our happiness, is when we look to him. Lord, as we part ways this morning, we ask that you would indeed fill us with your spirit and make us a people not only set apart unto you, but on mission for you to share this hope, this treasure we have heard about in your word, we have sung about together as a church, this treasure, Jesus, whom we've worshiped today. We pray that he would be known and loved and honored among our friends, in our families, in our communities, Lord. We pray for that. And in this nation, and Lord, around the world, Lord, we, we want Jesus to be known. We want him to be exalted in the eyes and the hearts of all this world, Lord. And so we, we ask that you would be so kind as to use us as part of that mission, even this week. Part us now with your blessing. We ask this in the great name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. You are loved. <laughs>